Let's turn tonight to the book of Isaiah, chapter 36, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we come to chapter 36 of Isaiah. If you're with us here tonight and you don't have a Bible, there's gentlemen coming up the aisles and they have Bibles, and if you wave, they'll get one to you, and uh, it'll be marked to our passage this evening to make things a little bit easier for you. And uh, you can not only hear the word, but follow along. And if that is the only Bible you own, the one that you have in your hands right now, then you own it. That's yours. God wants you to have a Bible, to read the Bible, to know the Bible, to know the God of the Bible. And so that's the book that allows that to happen. When we come to chapter 36 now, in the book of Isaiah, we come to what is known as a parenthetical passage. And basically what it does is it brings to a close the first part of the book of Isaiah and it introduces the second part of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is basically made up of two uh, significant blocks. Uh, The first block is chapters 1 through 39 where God uh, speaks about his coming judgment that he was going to bring uh, upon the children of Israel because of their rebellion against him. And God's judgment is a loving action on his part toward his people when they're living in rebellion to him in order to bring them back into the life that he has for them. And so there is this bringing to a close what has been, many of you have been in here week after week now in this, and you say, boy, when do we get to the fun stuff, you know, in the second half of the book, and God speaking of his judgment over and over again. And also of the fact that he was going to use Assyria to chasten and discipline his children. But he also promised that he would not allow Assyria to ultimately conquer and uh, destroy uh, Judah entirely and the city of Jerusalem. And so we see now the fulfillment of all of that happening in these chapters. At the very end of uh, chapters 36 through 39, which we will not get to all of them tonight, but at the very end of um, chapter uh, 39, we're introduced to the Babylonians. And the Assyrians will at this point go to the wayside in terms of Isaiah's prophecies, and now the focus will turn to Babylon, the nation that would ultimately take the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity, again because of their sin and their rebellion that they refused to turn away from. So it tidies up some things, it wraps some things up, and then takes us into a new section of the book. It is a book that's filled with a lot of prophecies concerning Jesus, and it is a part of the book that is very full of hope and promises and uh, promises made to basically the Jews who were going to one day a righteous remnant return from the Babylonian captivity back into the land of Judah. But these promises are written to God's people through all of the ages. The godly remnant that exists always in the world, no matter how dark the world gets, no matter how kind of back on our heels the body of Christ is, no matter how dark things look in terms of the future of Christianity or Christians and so forth, it's not quite as uh, dark for us in this country because we have the Christian heritage that we have, but there are vast parts of the world that don't have that kind of a Christian heritage. And it looks like Christianity is on the edge in terms of its survival. And yet here is a whole second half of the book of Isaiah that gives great encouragement to uh, a godly remnant that exists in the world and will exist all the way until the Lord returns. Chapter 36, in earnest. We have a record here of the greatest crisis that occurred in Hezekiah's uh, life. I went into this with some, in some depth this morning, and it w- some of it will be a repeat for some of you, but not everybody here is in the morning, and uh, repetition is something that the Bible is uh, pretty keen on. So King Hezekiah is in the greatest crisis of his life. He is in the middle of an international crisis of Assyria, deciding now in its expansionist mode once and for all to defeat the two primary nations that they hadn't defeated yet in their conquest of the entire Middle East, and that was the southern kingdom of Judah 
and Egypt. And so now they're coming against in full force. Sennacherib the king is leading the forces against uh, Jerusalem. He has already, as we'll see in a moment, conquered all of Judah. All that remains that hasn't been conquered by Assyria is Jerusalem itself, where the king is, uh, is and then all kinds of people that have uh, j- gathered there behind the safety of those walls from all around Judah. But it's a very um, uh, dangerous place that he is in. Uh, the, uh, everyone that's within those walls, Assyria was ruthless with its enemies, most especially ruthless with those people who um, stood up and fought against them, required uh, their own blood in order to conquer a city. Once they did, they would be ruthless with those people. And so here is Hezekiah. He's having to make decisions. He's having to face a trial where he knows that how he handles this trial not only has repercussions for himself and for his family, the people that he loves in life, his closest friends and and peers and co-workers, so to speak, but also every person of every um, uh, status in life that have found refuge behind the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. And so this kind of sets the stage. Uh, four things. Here is Sennacherib. He comes into the city and Jerusalem had established a series of 46 uh, fortified cities that would lie uh, on, uh, on the road, was known as the Via Maris, because of the great desert that was off to the east of Israel. When an army would attack Israel in order to defeat it, it would never come straight across the desert. It would always have to go to the north, come down through Lebanon. They had to have water sources. They had to have food sources come down from the north and then conquer it from that direction. Jerusalem knew that any major power other than Egypt would have to attack them from that place. And so they set up these series of fortified cities to blunt any kind of offensive that uh, another country might come against them with. And Sennacherib has, he's got an army that numbers, as we'll see next week, in 185,000. I don't know the last time you, or we'll see it this week, actually. I don't know the last time you counted to 185,000. takes you quite a while. And to consider that every one of those numbers that you would number represents a guy that is armed, seasoned in warfare, and he is outside the gate and he wants uh, your head. And so Sennacherib has come into the land. He's defeated easily, readily, like nothing. He's defeated all of these cities. And the only plum that he doesn't have yet is the city of Jerusalem. And now he wants to take that and finish his conquest of Judah. Judah. So all of Judah other than Jerusalem is conquered. It's defeated all of its farmland, all of its villages, all of its walled cities. And then the king of Assyria, having done this, he sent the Rebeksha, Rebsheka, rather, is not a name of a proper name of a person. It's, it is a title given to someone. This is probably um, Sennacherib's field general of his army. So he sends the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish, which is where uh, the Sennacherib was camped, to come to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. He came to the and stood at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's uh, field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, uh, uh, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they came out to meet this man. So he comes representing Sennacherib. Sennacherib doesn't come because Sennacherib doesn't come personally. Hezekiah, being a king, does not go out to meet him. Uh, These people personally, you send a lower level uh, envoy than, than Hezekiah said, I will send the people that represent that position within my reign out to meet you. These were all men listed here in verse 3 that would have been a part of his cabinet and uh, his inner circle in terms of his reign. So they came out to meet with the Rabshakeh, 
And then the Reb Shekah said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, we've got a message for you to deliver to Hezekiah. They didn't come to talk to these three guys. They want to talk to the guy at the top. And here's the message you should say to him. Thus says the great king. Okay, here we go. Don't ever begin a letter to anybody with that. Thus says the great John. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. What confidence is this in which you trust? And so the Rebecca, he comes. And basically his purpose in coming is to call on the city of Jerusalem to surrender without a battle. That's his purpose. And so he brings this message from Sennacherib, and uh, King Sennacherib is going to lay out to uh, Hezekiah all the arguments for the reason that he ought to surrender without a battle. And so the message says, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you, you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? I mean, you know you can't uh, whoop me alone, so who in the world are you trusting in to be able to withstand my army? And he said, look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if, if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So he has a, quite a gift for mocking Hezekiah, and, uh, and he's got quite a uh, sense of self-importance here. And there's a lot of scorn here, a lot of talking down uh, to Hezekiah. And so he makes fun of the fact that Hezekiah and Judah are putting their trust in being able to withstand Assyria based upon a trust in Egypt. What they said, as soon as you, he says, as soon as you try to lean on Egypt, he's going to be like a staff that breaks and it stabs you. He's going to do more harm than good, which was true. God had been telling that, that through Isaiah for a long time. So he mocked their trust in Egypt. Then in verse 7, he mocks their trust in God. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? And so he makes, uh, mocks the idea of their trusting there within the Lord. Clearly the Assyrians had heard about Hezekiah's spiritual reforms in the land where he had gone in and wiped out all idolatry, all of the high places. He had done so under God's instruction and in obedience to God's word. What he had done in removing the worship of all of these false gods, that was a good thing. Sennacherib doesn't understand Judaism. He doesn't understand the Old Testament. So when the story comes to him, it sounds like what Hezekiah has done is that he's risen up against the God of the Jews, wiped out all of their places of worship, and so God is obviously going to be steamed with him over this. And so how can you think that uh, God is going to be on your side in light of the fact that you've wiped out all of his places of worship uh, before the people? So again, uh, this is the uh, uh, misunderstanding that he has, but the accusation that he brings nonetheless. And now, therefore, I urge you, Give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. And how then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? And so here he mocks uh, Judah's military capabilities. Judah didn't, Judah had a significant military. For the size that it was and for the place that it had um, in the Middle East. And so we don't expect when we're comparing uh, military forces, we don't expect the military of Romania or of Latvia to be on a par with the United States of America or some other major world power. They had a, a sufficient military, but it was nothing compared to the military of 
uh, Assyria. So he makes fun of them. He says, listen, this isn't even an even battle that we're engaged in here. Uh, we've got 185,000 soldiers that are, uh, part of them are camped here. Others are within a very short distance of marching here. Obviously, Assyria had a large amount of cavalry, and they said, listen, we'll free up, we'll spot you. You know, it's like you're in a, some kind of a game of horse or something. We'll spot you the first four letters. And so we'll give you 2,000 horses. If you can put horsemen on it, uh, find horsemen to put on them, and then to make the battle a little bit uh, more fair. I think I mentioned it in first service, but not in second service. But I remember when we were playing basketball in high school and in college, sometimes we'd go to one of the junior high gyms that would be open on Saturday or the high school gym, whatever was open. We were gym rats just looking for a game anywhere. And you would always walk into the doors hoping there'd be like 60 guys in there and everybody lined up with their team of four or five and they've got the next winners and and that whole thing. But sometimes you'd walk into a gym and it'd it'd be weird, full the week before and now there's just like five people and your heart would sink and you'd say, well, we're not going to get much of a game or much of a workout out of this. And so it would be an odd number. And everybody wants to play. You can't choose sides and have one guy standing on the side. And so what you would do is you would, uh, the two guys that were typically the better players would then say, okay, the two of us will take on the three of you. It wouldn't be fair if the two guys that were the best players then picked up one of the others because then you couldn't add the third because they'd be even. Then it would be two out of line. So you'd say, all right, the two of us will take on the three of you. And typically it would end up being a pretty good game based upon that. But it, um, when you would... The two guys would beat the three guys. It was kind of a humiliation on it. And this is kind of what uh, Sennacherib is doing here. He's saying, listen, we can beat you with one hand tied behind our back. See, if I'd have thought of that, I wouldn't have had to tell you this other illustration. But I'm reliving my life, my glory years in basketball. Go ahead and bring the trophy out right now that I got when I was in basketball. One trophy my whole life. But it was the only one I ever wanted. Anyway, as for another sermon... Listen, it'll take me an hour to tell you that story one day. We'll work that in someplace before I go to heaven, but not tonight. So anyway, this is what's going on. He mocks Judah's military capabilities. And then he says, Have I not come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? And the Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Now this was a powerful accusation that Sennacherib brings against Hezekiah and against the children of Israel. Because he's saying, God, your God, the God that you worship, that's the name that he uses here, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews. And he says, God is the one that has sent us me here to destroy you. Now, God did raise up and allow the Assyrians to come in and... Uh, conquer Judah to the degree that they had in order to chasten Judah for their sins, in order to get them to turn back to God. But God never said that he was going to allow the Assyrians to destroy Judah. That was, uh, that was a lie that uh, the Rebekah is, is speaking here, but it would be a powerful lie if Um, somebody didn't stop and get Isaiah or some other prophet and say, now what did God really say about this? And Isaiah would say, listen, God said he's going to use this nation to chasten you, but he's not going to allow Assyria to destroy you. So Sennacherib has got things goofed up in his mind. But the lie is powerful because the Jews in Judah were... At this point in time, maybe not as much under Hezekiah, certainly not as much under Hezekiah, but at other points in their history, they were out sinning the northern kingdom of Israel before the, when the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity to the Assyrians 20 years earlier. And so the idea is, listen, if the God that you serve uh, didn't protect the northern kingdom of Israel, 
in their sin, and here you are guilty of sins as well, then he's not going to protect you either. You have no confidence uh, in God at all. And so he's undermining any kind of confidence that they might have in the Lord. But again, the Lord, uh, he did say the northern kingdom of Israel would fall to the Assyrians, but not the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is the spiel. This is the whole uh, thing that he lays out now to these three government officials. And then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Reb Shekah, Please uh, speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand Aramaic. Let's talk in a foreign language here a little bit. And uh, don't be talking to us and saying all these things in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So he comes in. He's obviously very educated, very literate. He is able to speak not only Assyrian, but he knows Hebrew. And he comes and he speaks to them in Hebrew. As you might imagine, as they're meeting out in this field, everybody in the city that can clamor up, uh, up against the wall and the ramparts and, and put an ear out and listen to what in the world is the representative of Assyria saying to our king and what is he going to do to us, all of, us, all of them were listening. And he's speaking in Hebrew, a language that they could understand. The three representatives of Hezekiah said, listen, maybe, you know, you know another language, you know Aramaic, let's talk in Aramaic. Because for the Jews at that time, Aramaic was the language of the world. It was the language of the nations, but only the more educated among the Jews would have understood the language. So he's basically saying uh, they're wanting to change the language because what he's saying is disheartening enough to them will be disheartening enough to uh, Hezekiah, but he didn't want the people then to be disheartened as well. Well, as you might guess, in the arrogance of uh, uh, both Sennacherib and his representative here, the Reb Shekah, he then uh, said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? So now he just starts to speak out louder and he's trying to dishearten the, uh, the people that make up the city of Jerusalem, the citizens of it, and letting them know that if they resist this uh, uh, attack by Sennacherib, that it will ultimately lead to a siege where there will be such a shortage of food and water that the only food and liquids that they will ultimately be uh, left with is the waste that comes from their own body. Very graphic speech. Everybody could picture it in their mind. They knew what a, a, a siege was like in those, uh, those days. And they knew about Assyria's capabilities. And then the Reb Sheka, uh stood and he called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. And he said, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Here, Hezekiah, he's nothing, nothing, I tell you. This is the great king. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. So don't trust in your king. Don't trust in him saying you have any chance against us. So they're trying to undermine the authority of Hezekiah before the people. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of, of the king of Assyria. Uh, don't believe what Hezekiah is trying to do in getting you to trust God against the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me, buy a present and come out to me. And every one of you, if you surrender, will eat from his own vine and everyone from his own fig tree. And every one of you will drink from the waters from his own cistern. Ah, here's the catch, verse 17. And you don't have to be a lawyer to catch it. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And so he said, if you surrender, you won't starve. I'll allow you to stay in your homes and in your properties for a little bit shorter of a time. But 
Uh, ultimately, he's saying, and this was the methodology of the Assyrians, when they conquered people, they then took the population and they displaced them. They removed them and settled them into another part of uh, the Assyrian Empire and then brought uh, a foreign people then into the land of Judah. This is where the Samaritans came from. It had all of its roots in, in the, uh, the, uh, the Assyrian uh, conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so this was their methodology. It kept their kingdom stable. If nations were allowed to stay in their native lands, they would be more likely to rise up in insurrection against uh, Assyria. So this was their methodology for keeping people unsettled and making it easier to dominate over them. But this is the promise uh, that he makes to them. Listen, the only thing to do is to surrender. You'll continue to have enough water, continue to have enough food, and we're not taking you to a place that uh, is terribly bad. The problem with the Assyrians in the speech that uh, Sennacherib is delivering is they already had a very long, significant track record in the ancient world. And so everybody had heard the news that when Assyria conquers you, it isn't that they bring in, you know, all of the bread and you get like nice French baguettes with butter and jam every morning and this way that he's painting everything here. When they conquered you, if they didn't kill you, they would put a ring in your nose, put a chain through that, and then they drag you to a foreign land. So everybody in the city knew that this was uh, propaganda here. And, uh, but nonetheless, uh, they try it to see who will maybe fall for it. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Again, Assyria had conquered uh, virtually all of the Middle East and, as a result, all of the gods that the various people had worshipped. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of uh, Sepharvaim? Indeed, they have... Uh, indeed. Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And so now he declares the folly of not only trusting in Hezekiah, but the folly of trusting in God. And now he speaks in his bluster, in his arrogance, and in his pride. Now he offends the God of Israel. He puts the God of Israel down on the same level in his own mind. This is his own communication. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This was his attitude toward the God of Israel. He's a nothing. He's a nobody. He's no greater than the uh, idols that anybody else worship. And now he's getting himself into some trouble because God happens to listen to those kind of conversations and to take them uh, seriously. And so he blasphemes the Lord, says, listen, the Lord won't be able to help you any more than these other gods that, have, uh, that other people have trusted in. And that, of course, isn't true. Our God, we are different than everyone else in the world by virtue of the fact that the God of the Bible is our God, and he is unique. He is the only uh, true and powerful God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But the congregation, so to speak, there on the walls, they held their peace. They didn't answer a word back to uh, this uh, general that is speaking, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. And that's very, very wise. Sometimes when someone is so arrogant and so proud and so in your face and so full of bluster, the best thing you can do is just not to answer them at all. In the Bible, one of the Proverbs says, uh, talks about not answering a fool according to his folly. This is a speech full of folly. And uh, sometimes when people go, sometimes if people just say one little offensive thing, then, you know, we can get our hackles up and now we want to fight them. But when you've got this much bluster all put together and the guy is so convinced in his own mind of all of this and nothing is sacred, not even, not only Hezekiah, but the God of the Jews, you just look and you say, God, this is your problem. This is not my problem. I can't fix this guy. You're going to have to fix him. I have nothing to say. 
Uh, you are God's project. And then you just pray silently for them, keep your mouth shut, and go on about your business. They had a command not to say anything, and to their credit, they didn't. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, they come now back to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. Bad sign. Hezekiah is waiting for news for how did this little conference go. The guys come in and they've torn all the clothes that they're wearing. When you would tear your clothes in the ancient world, it was a, uh, a symbol of mourning. It was a way of saying, I've just heard something that has torn my heart in half. We're talking about something that has so emotionally and mentally impacted you that the only way that you can express it, you can't express it in words. It can just be expressed outwardly. And so they would tear their clothes. And if you saw someone with their clothes torn in that way, you realize, wow, this person is in a rough place. Something very difficult has come into their life. And so they came in in this condition. And then beyond that, they told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And so it was, as they deliver this word now, the whole city's been listening to it. You can imagine the word goes through uh, the, the grapevine of Jerusalem at this time. Everybody knows what he said, the threats that he said and all. So all eyes are now on uh, Hezekiah. What in the world is Hezekiah going to do? And uh, so Hezekiah's response is given to us here in chapter 37. And so it was. When the king Hezekiah, he heard it, that he then tore his clothes. This, again, you, you, we read that, but then to think about how that news just pierced his heart. This was the worst thing that he could have possibly heard. It just tore his heart in half. He then covered himself with sackcloth, indicating just a sense of mourning over um, the situation, I think that probably the sackcloth, which is kind of a, a where they would wear that as a expression of mourning, but also of repentance. I think that Hezekiah probably, when he a little bit earlier in the history, he had taken the wealth, a portion of the wealth of Jerusalem, and he had given it to the Assyrians in order, in an attempt to buy them off from attacking Judah. Assyria simply took all of that wealth and then violated the agreement that they had come to not to attack uh, Ju- uh, Judah and went and attacked anyway. And so I think here is this thing within his own heart where he looks at God and says, God, I'm so sorry I had any part in putting our trust in negotiations, politicians, envoys, ambassadors. We should have trusted in you all along. And so He dons himself with this sackcloth, and then he went into the house of the Lord. And so this great trial in his life, as we saw this morning, he allowed it to take him deeper in his relationship with the Lord, to draw closer to the Lord. He needed a relationship with God now, in the light of what he's in the middle of now, uh, a deeper relationship with God than he'd ever known before. The nice thing about it is God's got a deeper relationship for us every time we turn to him for more. And, uh, and he's going to do that with Hezekiah. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to go to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, with the request, saying to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. And it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rebeksha, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. That's beautiful confidence. God heard that whole conversation. He heard the blasphemy of this king. Not against me, Hezekiah saying, listen, they can say whatever they want about me. But they pulled God into this, and they've uh, blasphemed him. And so therefore, uh, lift up your prayers for the remnant that is left here in the city of Jerusalem. And when he talks about the fact that they were 
like uh, children, uh, for in verse uh, 3, children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. You can imagine a woman who is giving birth to a child. Of course, we have modern technology today to uh, do some different things that they didn't have in those days. But here's a mother who has maybe been in, oh, you hear these horror stories of like these labors that are 36 hours, 18 hours, you know, these kind of things. And then somebody comes in and says, ah, that's nothing. I had my baby in an hour and a half, you know, and you just, you know, you just want to poke them right in the eye. I could have lived without hearing that. So it's nice. It's nice to be that lively. God bless you. But uh, when a person would give, uh, uh, come to a place where now is the time to, to deliver the child, and now they're so exhausted. And I'll tell you, a mom has to be pretty exhausted. She now no longer has any strength to even push the baby out. And in that condition, both her life and the life of the baby are now in jeopardy. And it was just a poetic, beautiful, poetic way for Hezekiah to say, listen, everybody's life in the city of Jerusalem is now in jeopardy as a result of this threat. We need you to pray to God in addition to our prayers. And so the servants of King Hezekiah, they came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, uh, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now, here's a, a wonderful thing. They uh, say, Isaiah, begin to pray for this situation. Isaiah does begin to pray, and then God speaks to Isaiah, and the first thing that he says to tell Hezekiah is, don't be afraid. Can you think about what those words would have meant to him? Now, why would he say it, except they were terrified over the circumstance? And yet God comes in and says, all right, you've prayed to me. I've got a word for you. Number one, don't be afraid of this situation. And how wonderful it is to hear that in the middle of, of a, a circumstance like that, to hear from the throne of God. And sometimes it happens in our own prayer when we're in the middle of a situation. I've had it happen more, at least a handful of times in the course of my Christian life and in the course of being a pastor of this ministry where something has come up and it's just like, I don't know. I don't know if I'll survive it. I don't know if we'll survive it, Lord. And then to lay the things out to the Lord and then the Lord to come in and say, I've got this. In fact, I've so got this, I don't want you to do anything. I will take care of it all by myself. And then to watch him do it. But it means the world to hear the voice of God in a time like that. And he does. Jesus has given this to us for our whole life as Christians. All of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, Jesus spoke to us as his children, he said, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Do not be afraid. I'm bigger than every problem that you have, and I'm going to take care of you. So priceless words, don't be afraid. And uh, I've heard what he's uh, said and what he has said specifically about me and blaspheming me. Here's what I'm going to do. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor. And so God was just going to make him hear a rumor from some place. Uh, and then as a result of it, he will return to his own land, and then I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. You see how important prayer is. Because without prayer, the natural inclination of Hezekiah or most people with a little bit of fight still in them would be, okay, now, we've got, send those 2,000 horses. We'll put somebody on them. And now we've got to shore up this wall and make sure we've got the right forces on this gate. And then we need to make sure that the food supplies are, are carefully being monitored and, and begin to look for, okay, how am I going to handle this situation that I've got to deal with in life? God steps in and God says, listen, you don't need to do anything. I'm going to take care of all of it for you. Now, there's still faith involved because he does not tell Hezekiah how he's going to do it or when he's going to do it. He just tells them, this is my problem. I'll take care of it. You just relax in the situation. Again, as we saw this morning, we don't know anything about our situation 
until we know how God sees our situation and speaks to us about it, either from his word or by his Holy Spirit. And that's what Hezekiah receives at this particular point. This is the promise. And then the Rebekah, he returned and he found the king after delivering the message. He found the king of Assyria was warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king, uh, that is Sennacherib, he heard concerning uh, uh, Terhaka, the king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So Sennacherib is out in the open in uh, Judah. He has a portion of his military force. He hears a rumor, just like God said he would, that the king of Ethiopia is going to come up and attack you in the defense, perhaps, of Judah. And so as a result of that rumor, he then takes and uh, leaves off his attack against Libna or his encampment there to then go to Lachish to meet this force that he thinks is coming. So God is already fulfilling what he had told Isaiah he would do. And so when he heard it, that is the king, he says, oh no, these Jews and Hezekiah, they're going to think that this is some kind of a circumstance that God has arranged and that now God is delivering them from my hand. And so he says, I don't want them uh, to get their hopes up here. So he had a message sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God and whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't get hopeful about this change of events. God's not working here. No, you're right. God's always working in the lives of his children. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? You're just like everybody else. And your God is like everybody else. Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and uh, Reseph and the peoples of Eden who were at Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of... Uh, oh, it had to be there a second time, didn't it? And Henna and Iva. And so again, he continues his blasphemy against the Lord. And then in response to this renewed threat, this um, second bringing forth of this blasphemy against him and, and the threat of, of, uh, of Sennacherib, we see Hezekiah's response. He received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And then Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And I just love that picture. I love that picture. And when these things happen in our life, to take this threat or this whatever the situation is and go in, get on thy knees before the Lord somewhere, and say, Lord... Look at this problem that I have that I realize is your problem because I am one of your children and I'm one of your servants. And there's just such a beautiful simplicity, a beautiful humility about it. We will all find ourselves sooner or later in that place where that crisis comes into our life. We don't know what to do with it. It, we, we don't even, we know that we can't even fiddle with it. We know that we can't even try and make an Ishmael out of it. It's so beyond our control or our ability to put a dent in it, and we just bring it right before the Lord and we spread it out to Him. And then notice Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and this is his prayer O Lord of hosts, God of Israel the one who dwells between the cherubim. And when he talks about the Lord of hosts, this speaks of the fact that God is the Lord of a great army, an angelic army. He's the God of Israel. He's the one who dwells between the cherubim. That is, his home is in heaven. His throne is in heaven. You are God. You alone of all of the kingdoms of the earth. God, I know that you're not like all of these other idols that he's clumped you in together with. You have made the heavens and the earth. And so here he is before he even brings the specifics of the need verbally to the Lord. 
he takes and he spends some time thinking about the greatness of the God that he is delivering this problem to, this crisis to. And it's so important for us to, in this point in our prayer, in a crisis, to not stop in our worship of the Lord, our adoration of the Lord, our expression to the Lord, our meditation upon the greatness of the Lord until we are uh, no longer overwhelmed with the greatness of our problem, but now overwhelmed with the greatness of our God. And that's why he does. He's not vain repetition. He's not just saying these words in order to say, okay, what's every name for God that I know from my um, uh, Shabbat uh, school? Uh, These are things he's saying that mean something to him. All of these names have a direct application to the attack that Sennacherib is laying out against him and how God himself is able to come against it and to blunt it. And it's so important in our lives to do that when the crisis has come. I'm not getting up from off of my knees until I see God is greater and infinitely greater than the problem that I'm laying at his feet. And whatever length of time that takes for that to occur, it will occur, but to give it that time. He said... Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach uh, the living God. And so he's pouring out his heart to the Lord. And, uh, uh, and the things that he said, not only against the Jews, not only against Hezekiah, but against the living God. Again, he describes uh, God as the living God. He's acting, Lord, Second Sennacherib is acting like you're a dead God, like all of these other gods. You're the living God. And so again, his heart is, his prayer is being built up. This is the God. I'm talking to you, Lord. I know who I'm talking to in all of this. I remember Daryl Mansfield when we used to do a lot of concerts here in Modesto years and years ago uh, when we were located downtown. And he used to have a bumper sticker that you could buy. And it said, my God's alive. Uh, Sorry about yours. Uh, A little bit, a little bit pointed maybe for some people, but I happen to have liked it a lot. And, uh, but it's the truth about things. There's only one living God, and every, all, everything else is a farce. They're posers. And, uh, and so here he is. He's expressing this. And he said, truly, Lord. I mean, Lord, I'm being honest with you. So here he is. He's pouring out his heart. The kings of Assyria, they have laid waste all the nations in their lands. I mean, they're tough. They really are tough. And they have cast the gods of these nations into the fire because they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, and therefore they've destroyed them. And then now he asks specifically of God what he wants God to do. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. And here's the recognition in Hezekiah. It's a beautiful recognition in every child of God, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, every one of us in this room. God's reputation is completely bound up in us and in his faithfulness to keep his promises to us. And so his glory, his reputation before the world hinges upon him being faithful to the promises that he's made to us. Now, we don't have to put his arm behind his back in order to make him be faithful to us because he loves us. He wants to be faithful to us. But here's that recognition that, Lord, this situation here is about your glory. If he conquers this city in defiance of what you have promised us, then the greatest casualty will not be a mass slaughter of the citizens of Jerusalem. The greatest casualty will be to your reputation. Lord, don't let it happen. And there's something beautiful about the spiritual depth of this man and his concern for the reputation of God in all of this. And then Isaiah, the son of Amos, He sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because, and circle that word in your mind, if not in your Bible, uh, prayer makes a difference. God did what he did in answer to prayer. What would God have done if he hadn't prayed? I don't know. 
but we don't need to know. He did pray. And the lesson is for us to pray so we can then see what it is that God has in mind uh, in terms of working in our situation. The Bible says that sometimes we have not because we ask not. Well, I never want to not have because I've failed to ask. Hezekiah asked pointedly, specifically. And so because he had pray, uh, prayed to me, God said, against Sennacherib, the king of Israel, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin daughter of Zion, speaking of Jerusalem. He did, uh, Mount Zion was in Jerusalem. And so speaking of her as a virgin, in other words, the language uh, is communicating that Assyria will not violate they will not violate Jerusalem any more than a virgin's been violated. It's not going to happen. And the virgin daughter of Zion has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. In other words, when this is all said and done and you see what I'm going to do to you, uh, Jerusalem and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to laugh behind your back at all of your boasting and your arrogance and your blasphemy against God. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Um, the, against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel? So you want to fight? You picked a fight? Now you've got to fight with the Holy One uh, uh, of Israel. And so the fight isn't with my people. You've picked a fight with me because my people and I are indivisibly united. Isn't it interesting that God refers to us as Christians, as members of the body of Christ? There's nothing that happens to us individually, but that that thing is happening to this thing called the body of Christ of which Jesus is the head. He takes it personally. He's personally involved. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest heights to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. And so is boasting in all that he was able to accomplish. And then the Lord gives him the real reasons behind uh, their victories. He said, Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, because I'm using you as my instrument of judgment and chastisement at this time in human history, it's for this reason that their inhabitants had no power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb and the grass on the housetops and the grain blighted before it's grown. It wasn't anything about you. It was me using you. But you don't understand any of that. And then God says, I know where you live. <laughs> you ever been in an uh, altercation, hopefully, before coming to know Christ? And uh, somebody has said, I know where you live. Maybe you beat him the first time, but he's going to come back for seconds. Or you said to the person, all right, I know where you live. I'll find you there. Well, those are kind of words that um, you want to be a little tougher than the person that's saying those words to you when that happens. But the Lord says, I know where you live, and I'm going to send you back there. I know your dwelling place. You're going out, and you're coming in, and you rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose. You like putting hooks in people's noses? You like that? You think that's smart, huh? What do you think about, huh? God didn't call him to abuse people that he had conquered and, and, uh, and, and taken over. God was looking to humble them, to chasten them, to get them to look to God, not to be abusing them in this way. So you like putting hooks in their nose? You like putting bridles on their lips? I'll do the same thing to you, and I'll turn you back by the way which you came. I'm going to direct you 
Right back home, Buster. And here, this shall be a sign to you. And now he's no longer speaking to Sennacherib, but to Hezekiah. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year which springs from the same, and in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. And so the year that they were in, where Assyria was attacking them, the land had been devastated. They would only be able to eat what was left on the land. The second year, the land would still be ravaged and bearing the consequences of the invasion. But the third year, things would be back to normal, and then they would once again be, um, have enough to eat, and all of these things would be turned back. So God is, the Bible talks about, I've given you a future and a hope, and so he speaks of the future to them. Sometimes when a person will go in and see a counselor concerning a problem that they have, and they're so disoriented by the problem, they don't know if they're going to survive it, they don't know if they're going to outlive the weak, and the counselor will very often, in one way or another, very wisely say to the person, now listen, In a year, how do you think you'll see this situation? How do you think you'll see this situation in five years? And what the counselor has done is caused the person to begin to think about the fact that you're going to outlive this trial. And every Christian is going to outlive their trial. You're going to outlive this trial. There is a future. There is a hope. There will be a year from now. There will be a five years from now. And it brings hope into a person's heart and into their life. And so when God lengthens the time frame in which Hezekiah and the children of Israel are looking at the immediacy of the trial, it is infusing hope in there. There's going to be a year from now. There's going to be a two years from now. There's going to be a three years from now. And those are wonderful words for the Lord uh, to speak to his child when we find ourselves in this kind uh, of uh, of a problem. He says, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. And therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. Now, this message is not to uh, Sennacherib himself, but he speaks it to Hezekiah. He shall not come into this city. Put yourself on the rampart of the wall and then hearing this message. That guy and not one of his soldiers is going to step foot in this city. I claim it. (laughs) Okay, I claim it. The Bible's full of promises like this in the face of our enemy and the difficulties that we face in our lives. He shall not come into this city. He's not even going to shoot a single arrow there, nor nor come before it with shield. He's not even going to attack the city, not one time. He's not going to build a siege bound against it. And somebody would listen to a promise like this in the face of what they were looking at with 185,000 soldiers uh, surrounding the city, and they would look and say, there is no way this promise of God is going to come true. It'll take a miracle. God does miracles. And how many times have you been in your life where you have claimed a promise related to a situation in terms of its context in the Bible, it applies exactly to your situation, and your situation is so dire, and you look at it, and you say, it will take a miracle for God to keep that promise. He does miracles. It's effortless for him to do that. If he must do a miracle to keep a promise, then he will do the miracle. And he's about to do a miracle, a rather significant one. He will, by the way that he came, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. He's going to leave Jerusalem completely unconquered. That is the word of the Lord. Nothing could have seemed more inconceivable in the light of the physical circumstance. And God said, here's the reason why. For I will defend this city, I will do it, uh, to save it for my own sake, that is my own reputation, and for my servant David's sake, the promises that I have given to David uh, concerning him and his lineage. Well, it all looks impossible. I've got the promise of God here. I've got 185,000 Assyrian troops right outside the wall. So what's going to happen? And then the angel of the Lord went out. Just an angel, Angel Bob, Angel Rick, Angel Sarah, just an angel. We're not talking about an archangel. We're not talking about cherubim. We're just, it's just an angel of the Lord. He goes out. 
and miraculously kills in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 of them. Again, when's the last time you counted to 185,000? Take you a long time to do it. And in one night, he went out and did it. Remember, God says, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is rest. I'll take care of this. Now, sometimes we can have a trial in our life, and God says, all right, I'm going to do this, but here's the little part I want you to play in it, and he'll tell us that. But in this situation, he said, hands off. I take care of this one. And he did it. And it required a miracle. But again, he does miracles, and he can do it in a night. And so when the people rose early in the morning there in Jerusalem, there were the corpses, all of them dead. And so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he departed. They never went into the city of Jerusalem. They went away and they returned home and remained. And he returned home and remained at Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian uh, empire. So he left, um, he would lead his nation or his empire in five more military campaigns, but never again did he ever try, attempt to conquer Jerusalem or Judah. Uh, fool me once. <laughs> so he, he, he learned his lesson. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his God, that his sons, Adramelech uh, uh, and uh, Sherazar struck him down with a sword. And there's no truth to the rumor that they did so because he named them uh, those names. Uh, but his own sons, here he goes in to worship his God in his temple, and his God can't even protect him within his own temple from his own sons. They assassinate him just as God said he would go back and that he would uh, die back in his own land. They then escaped into the land of Ararat, and then uh, uh, his son, that one, the uh, Big E, we call him, uh, his son reigned in his place. And so God, he keeps his promises. And there's no problem and no situation we will ever face in life that is greater than the God who loves us and greater than his power and his desire to keep every promise that he has given us in his word, even if it takes a miracle to accomplish it. Let's have the worship team come forward and let's also have the men come forward for uh, the serving of the Lord's Supper tonight as well.